one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Gavin was just singing Schneider Twain, Man, Feel Like oh, a we're Woman. We're leaving this During in. During the ad we? break, we're leaving that okay, in. Okay, well, yeah, really oh well. Did anyone record that? Let's see if we can get a clip of that. <laughs> no, didn't happen. Don't know what you're talking about. This is what we do Next. in the ad breaks. This is what we do in the ad breaks. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King. I'm joined in studio by political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hello there. How are and you? My good, how are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. My fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. How are you? How are we, folks? Good. good. I threw in a wave there just to commemorate last week. Uh, <laughs> I knew. Last I week knew. You would not let me lose that time. Can I just say, right, I thought that you were running out of time and I thought you were going for a quick goodbye, so I just went for a wave and then it was, <laughs> it was like no, a long I pause. pause to invite you to say goodbye. Well, it was only when <laughs> like, I like listened back to the podcast bit that I was like, that's sounded ridiculous that I didn't say anything so anyway well we live and learn okay yeah, yeah, that wasn't my finest moment. Can, consider that dig in now. <laughs> Get a clear run of the rest of the program. Okay. Um, we come to this podcast off the back of a beautiful bank holiday weekend. Mm. Obviously, it's a few days ago now. Did you enjoy it? It was working for all the, of us. Were you at the Bose match, though? I was, yeah. So yeah. you fitted in a few bits alongside work. So a few of us from here went to uh, Bowes against Ligo Rovers. Lovely. And we also went to the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble gig in a place called The Well in Stevens Green. Lovely. And we were a bit content. It was a great gig. They're really good. A lot of people might have seen them at festivals over the years. But um, the gig finished early and there was a bit of frustration about that. Uh-huh. Basically, they turned off the mics on them. They couldn't even do their encore and we were all just thrown out into the street before oh, 10 o'clock. Is that where that was? Because I saw, saw the, your stories but I didn't recognise the venue and I was yeah. wondering where that was. That's Never the, been there well. before, but yeah. Okay. It was and very we, weird. Did it come as a surprise to the band that they were... Some of them seemed to come back on to try and play again. We and I like Joe Caulfield from Virgin Media Sport uh, actually has Love is Joe. mutually followed by one of the members of the band and messaged him to try and figure out what was going on. <laughs> oh my while god! I, while I messaged the venue, uh, neither of us have, have an answer yet. So multiple sources yeah. declined to comment on the reason for I the premature ending. I didn't realize we were opening the show, so you could have proper investigative journalism. <laughs> oh yeah, we were, oh, wow. we were digging into it. It was like, what's happened here? There were a lot of people who were fr- frustrated because <laughs> it was a great gig, but then it was just over within. Literally about an hour. Oh my God. Yeah. Gav, you had a nice game with the girls. Yeah, great weekend with the girls. was at the National Concert Hall on Sunday for a live orchestral performance of Room on the Broom and Zog, which are enormous hits uh, among the, the Colleeny Riley. And then on Monday, we were in Kilkenny for a barbecue. And on Saturday, uh, their mother went to Bloom for a few hours. And then I went to Croke Park to watch me winning the Christie Ring Cup. Oh uh, my God, your dad. Yes, my dad is, a, is yes. the like a, in the back room of the Meath Hurley. He's like a player rep. Go on, Tom. Um, so, um, yeah, so he got some nice photographs of him him jogging out of the tunnel and all that. And then oh, uh, getting to celebrate that. with the cup, which is grand. Because like inter-county hurling, as we may possibly talk about later on, it's become such oh, a slog not. now because the calendar is so condensed that like it's basically non-stop from a couple of weeks yeah. before Christmas till like mid-June. Yeah. So for it to all be done and dusted and to, for it to finish on the right note with victory in the two tournaments. And a big family day for you guys. Well. Lovely family lovely, day as well. Yeah, yeah. What was your weekend like, Sarah? Yeah, lovely. I was in West Cork for the weekend. Oh, yeah. uh, sure, I love a bit of Cork McSherry as we all know. So it was great. I had my first sea swim or as Richard would call it, a, a swim. swim. <laughs> Did you bump to me, Hall Martin? He <laughs> yes. was down there as yeah, well. You're, you're was he there? I didn't see him there actually. Posted up some fuchsia and other oh, wildflowers. Geez. Said it was we lovely. Live, we live right on the fuchsia walk down there. Uh, yeah. No, I didn't see him actually. So You didn't have your traditional for the best, annual really. bump into him wearing a Fruit of the Loom t-shirt. No, no, no. I do feel like in fairness, neither of us want to see each other in that setting and I think that's probably 
for the best. Pretend you don't see him. He doesn't want to see me and I don't particularly want, you know, we say hello, but it's, it's yeah. So uh, did a bit of swimming, done whirly, absolutely gorgeous. Now, I'll admit, I, I like to be more, I'm mad into sea swimming than I really am. It's very cold. Like it is very cold. It's quite cold. Yes. But I did enjoy it though. So yeah, great weekend to have by all. Um, kind of feel like, we'd love to do it all over again. The weather, yeah. real leaving cert weather. And actually, best of luck to the leaving certs. We'll get to that before we finish up today. Now, want to begin, Richard, with a significant development in the crime world. Yes. What's happening? Well, this happened on Bank Holiday Monday and it seemed like it was a very quiet weekend for news until this happened. I actually got a text from somebody involved in organised crime investigating within Garda Síochána and said, keep your eyes peeled, something's happening. Mm. Uh, and basically I was alerted to a tweet by the Spanish National Police or Policia Nacional. Mm. And it was uh, a guy being led away by two Spanish police officers uh, and they identified him as a key member of the Kinahan cartel. Now, this man's name is Liam Byrne. He's 42 years of age. He effectively, he's been named in the High Court by the Criminal Assets Bureau as effectively being heavily involved in both drugs trafficking and in terms of violent crime uh, for the Kinahan cartel. He's effectively Daniel Kinahan's most trusted lieutenant mm. uh, of his operations. He basically, the Byrne crime family, people might know the, the, Bur- the Byrne family. David Byrne was Liam Byrne's brother. He was killed at the Regency Hotel shooting. Mm. Of course, that was one of the big turning points of mm. the Hutch Kinahan gang feud, which we've mm. seen in Dublin over the last number of years. So Liam Byrne is David Byrne's brother. Uh, effectively, he'd been living in the UK for a while as well. Now been based out of Dubai until this happened. So he's been arrested and another Irishman has been arrested. Uh, Jack Cavanagh is his name. He's 22. He's Thomas Bomber Cavanagh's son. So he's a guy who has been uh, effectively convicted in the UK as part of the ongoing multinational investigation into trying to bring down the Kinahan crime cartel, which has, of course, bloomed from Ireland mm. to becoming one of the world's biggest transnational OCGs. the UK role in all of this, because even the, the Spanish, when they were talking about this apprehension, they said that it was done not at the behest of the, the UK's National Crime Agency, but that it was effectively on foot of an investigation triggered by them. What's the role of the British authorities in all of this? And then where do the guards fit into the whole jigsaw? Yeah, so basically, and you, you might have seen this dating back a couple of years now. Do you remember when the US ambassador, Claire Cronin, did her big mm. thing in Dublin City Hall? Yes, yeah. That was, and it was last year, was it? We talked mm. about I think that it was, 20, was it 2021 or 2022? I, I think, think it was during the podcast We definitely one. talked about it on yeah. the podcast because you, yeah. you, were, you were definitely covering that for a couple of days. It feels, did like, it feels like even longer ago than that, yeah. but it, 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 it been on, it's been a long time coming anyway, this, this sort of collaboration between the UK National Crime Agency because a lot of the Kinnahans, uh, after what happened in Dublin with the gang war, some of them moved effectively over to the UK where they had a huge base of operations as well. So there's that co- cooperation between the US authorities on Garda Síochána and the UK's National Crime Agency, which basically tackles organised crime in the UK sense across, you know, they have multiple police districts, but it's the UK National Crime Agency. So gun running is the main thing that they were looking at here. Uh, and this is something which, it's actually fascinating how this all transpired, the arrest that transpired in Mallorca over the weekend transpired. It involves basically, there was a hack of, effectively criminals for a number of years were using an online chat platform, effectively a criminal WhatsApp. Um, it's called uh, EncroChat. Uh, It was hacked a few years ago. It's led to a number of convictions and a number of cases busted open by authorities, whether they be in Spain or in the UK. And effectively, that's what led them to uh, basically get enough detail on um, Liam Byrne and this operation uh, involving the movement of weapons, which were meant to be effectively flown into the United Kingdom. Spanish National Police as well, if if basically inspected, that this is a huge part of their operations is 
moving weapons. Actually, the, the level of detail the Spanish police actually give out mm. for arrests is mm. unbelievable. So like, I they, mean, it's so more, it's completely different. Well, system, uh, I remember the same like when, when they released the video of Jerry um, Hutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you never and, get a video the, released of an arrest. Well, not only the video, but the amount of detail that they were forthcoming with at the time, just their culture is to be much more upfront with what they've suspected somebody to be involved in doing, isn't it? Yeah, so basically what the level of, of arms importing, which is alleged to have gone on here, is just massive. And also the, the, the detail on it, like there were some of these weapons which are suspected of being trafficked uh, were also had mechanisms on them so they wouldn't have fingerprints. Mm. So that if you're a crime organisation using them, well, you can't tag it to a specific fingertip, uh, all that sort of stuff as well. So huge amount of um, sort of high level investigation which has gone on to this. So this was basically the focus of the of the importing of arms thing was very much a UK thing because it was on their turf really. But uh, sort of high level people from Angarda Shia Khan have been linked in the whole way through. But I have to stress, this is probably one of the most significant breakthroughs in terms of looking at the Kinahans and trying to break it down. That's the feeling in law enforcement circles that has happened uh, since the Americans got involved, whether it was last year or the year before. Effectively, the operation has been shut down in Ireland, right, at this point in time. And now you're starting to see roots of it starting to be rolled up across the board, whether that be in Europe or elsewhere. But there's a lot of key questions to be asked as well about it took for him to go from Dubai, where he'd been living mm-hmm. this lavish life, to Spain for him, for, for people to move on on him. Dubai authorities had been for a long time sort of saying, oh, we'll, we'll cooperate. We'll mm-hmm. cooperate with everything mm-hmm. you're doing. But, but they really have But if he's living there and he's been there going about his business and it's only when he goes to Spain that he's apprehended, yeah. it does raise legitimate questions about how much on his case they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there is definitely a question mark about the level of cooperation that is there, whether or not, you know, authorities in the UAE are as cooperative or as forthcoming or care enough about OCGs operating from within their borders. And how much of this is about starving the OCG you know, of resources? Because that's what all these manoeuvres are about, aren't they? It's about cutting off their access to, as you say, weapons and money and resources. Yeah, absolutely. So that that is the feeling here is that there's a feeling now, particularly you get it from speaking to Garda sources who are linked in and, and have been abreast and engaging with the UK authorities for the last number of weeks and months. There's a feeling now that the Kinahan Organised Crime Group is a little bit on the run, that the net has been closing in for a long time now. And now you're starting to see sort of tangible elements of it. Obviously, you've seen Thomas Bomber Kavanagh, uh, his conviction uh, there over over drugs issues. That was a huge one. That was a huge scalp there. He'd been, he, would have been, he would have been high up in the UK operation. Liam Byrne, as I said, he would have been pretty much the, the, the captain the effectively yeah. in the yeah. Irish sense and running it from abroad. So now you're starting to see top level people fall into the net. And there's a feeling now that you are pushing around now towards potentially the end of end game here uh, in this. Although that's obviously something which is, you know, at some basis that is obviously going to be speculative. These things mm. have a habit of dragging on. But when you see even the amount of coverage internationally that is focusing on the Kinahan organised crime group, you see now another podcast has been released. You see documentaries, you know, across Netflix or Amazon Prime, all of these things. And there is nobody around the world who can pretend to be ignorant of how you know broad a scope and how wide-reaching this organised crime group has been. Mm. So there's a feeling now that all of the ducks are starting to fall into a row. But also, I suppose it's the connections that the group has had as well. And there's been many conversations about the different high-profile sort of celebrity friends that sometimes the group has has come across or has had connections. I mean, one of the other crime podcasts today, and Nicola Talent, who has been on the group chat before her podcast today, talking about connections to um, Stephen Gerrard, whose daughter is going out with 
Liam Son, is that correct? That is, yeah. yeah. I think that, that's the link there. But obviously now there's no connection between Stephen Gerrard and organised yes, crime. Absolutely, yeah. But it is just, this is the, the, the level of almost, this brash level of in your faceness, which has mm. been existed there. And obviously people have seen, we'll have talked about in the podcast as well, the involvement of Daniel Kinahan in professional oh, boxing, boxing mm. was the most in your face, sure. I can do this yeah. sort of thing. And nobody can lay a glove on me. Pardon the pun in boxing sense. But this really, that does get people's backs up. If you're involved in long, 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 long term investigations into these people mm. and what they've been doing from the lowest level to the top level, if you're seeing, you know, Liam Byrne posting up photos or being photographed alongside like some of the biggest soccer stars of all time in, mm-hmm. in, in these islands, that will, that's a red rag to a bull. I mean, that really will focus the mind in terms of what you have to do and what's the stake in terms of, you know, the glamorising of um, organised crime. Gavin was just singing Schneider Twain, man, feel like we're a woman. We're leaving this During in During the ad break, we? we're leaving that okay, in. Well, yeah, really well. Well. Did anyone record that? Let's see if we can get a clip of that. No, didn't happen. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. This is what we do Next. in the ad breaks. This is what we do in the ad breaks. Okay, um, Prince Harry is in the high court. Um, and on Sky News. And on Sky, I mean, okay. So much to talk about, so many ways to go about this. We might get to the actual top lines from it in a minute, right? But first of all, Sky News has uh, decided as part of their sort of coverage of this, they have hired an actor to give you the closest sense of what's happening in the courtroom. That's how they describe it. And they've been doing a programme at nine o'clock. They're doing one last night, they're doing one tonight at nine as well. I, I Obviously, I set my alarm to watch it and I hook it to my veins. I had to watch it. But You're I watching Love Island on the player, don't. <laughs> I haven't watched Love Island yet, actually. I'm going to get to that, hopefully. But I just um, have so many thoughts on the acting. I'm, I'm, well, first, not on his acting, but I don't know how I feel about them actually doing about this. About the reconstruction About doing place. a reconstruction while a live case is ongoing. Um, you know, like, obviously, we see things like The Crown and there's a, a reconstruction at a later date on a lot of these things. I'm just not so sure about reconstructions in live news coverage day to day. How do you how do you feel about this, first of all? I'm not too bothered by it. It's, it's pretty novel. Have you watched it, In though? this part of the world. I did watch it last night. I was okay. channel hopping across and did watch yeah. it. And I thought some of the, the performance was a bit hammy. But as a, as a principal... I don't, have any, I don't have any major pro- <laughs> There oh you go gosh. now. Theatre critic Gavin Riley <laughs> says he's a bit hammy. the fact that this is like a critique of theatre in itself is mad. But no? I, I don't think the idea is all that far wide of the mark. Like we've seen oh. it being done before. Like do you remember the Michael Jackson trial and that wasn't yeah, being televised yeah, so that yeah. there was a whole a Just because it was done was before doesn't mean it was good and should well, be done again. It's, all, it's been done in tribunal circumstances where mm. tribunals in Ireland are done behind closed doors yeah. and there's been reconstructions of that don't on know radio, how I'm for example. Done it. I think there's nothing, there's nothing your, your newsroom graphics department couldn't have done that would like, I think it would have been better. But it's not, is it, it's not humanising in whatever way. No, as because the having... actor is not Harry and your man well, doesn't even look like I wanna, Harry. I want I want to stand up for this fine thespian uh, no, I think he's very talented, but just I just think I, I will follow unusual. this man's career for the future of it. I, I want to see whatever he's in from now on, just to see if this was the launch pad. Well, if he greatness. doesn't get the gig on the Crown when Netflix do this series, like I mean, it's well, he won't be... because he doesn't look anything like Harry. <laughs> Fair. Sorry, you just defended him, and now you're like he looks nothing. Well, he doesn't. Like it doesn't matter. Okay. It doesn't matter to me. He's too neat, and he's got way too much hair. I love him in an ironic sense. I think his delivery is too soft as well, to be honest, because Harry's quite angry about what's happened. I think the delivery needs to have a little bit more. If I was to give him some feedback on his performance. I would just say the tone needs to have a little bit more resentment in it because Harry had to go with me for saying it was Hammy and now immediately I know okay I'm sorry I know I know I I find the setup is mad so you have Jonathan Samuels who's a great uh, anchor from Sky in studio and then you'll see the actor standing off 
him to a bit yeah. and like he's in the dark and it's like almost like the weakest link the light pop or mastermind the, the light turns on to this guy, to yeah. Harry in the dock he's like they've built a little dock with like a binder in front of him and all these so things weird. that we should be and Jonathan Thomas is reading the council questions to him no, no, it just basically, it sort of just feeds to him. It basically is like, here's... I, I'm trying to figure out, right, are they pre-recorded grabs, as we call them, clips, or are they... Is it that I got the impression live? from Tuesday night's one that it was live, because I thought live. there was one instance oh, where he... Felt, felt, felt was, the energy. There was one oh. instance where he was responding back to questions, which I think Jonathan mm. Samuels was, was doing... He was putting the questions now, in the style of the, the council. Here's the other thing I was going to ask you. And Harry this was great. replying. Oh, this, is, this is where we're really getting great. into the weeds of journalism here. Do you think that the quotes are on autocue as well? Because you couldn't misquote Harry in that. If you're going to do a reenactment, you couldn't be misquoting. So do you reckon there's an autocue with a few lines on it? Uh, no, if he's an actor, he can learn lines. But in fairness to him, he's had no time to learn those lines because it was literally, it all happened yesterday. I just think the quick turnaround. Oh yeah, but if, he's on, if, if, so, if it happened up till like 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the day and then you were on live, live at 9 o'clock on Sky News, you would have time to do that. Would you? Yeah. What, I'd like I don't know. know. I have no idea what they're actually doing, yeah, but I'd say know. that you could. Those, you could. I did you, wonder you could that. Feasibly do it. Is the actor able to get into the courtroom to that study? That was my other subject? question. Is he? Has he been in there to has see he him? inspo? Yeah. Like, because uh, it sort of feel like if you were going to do the job properly, you'd want to see the lines that you are re-delivering delivered in their original context. But at the same time, then does it become really weird where Harry is trying to answer questions from counsel and he's looking over his shoulder and there in his peripheral vision is the guy who's playing Prince Harry on tonight's reconstruction. How long is this, uh, the charade going well, on? Well, so the case is expected to run, I think, till the end of June, but Harry's presence in the courtroom, I think, is due Limit. to wrap up like today or tomorrow or something like that. Oh, like actually, to be honest, they were talking there on Sky News at lunch about whether or not he'd actually even be there for the afternoon. Now as we're recording here, he is still there at the moment. Um, but that I think the feeling is kind of that he won't. He's not going to stay around to be there. He wasn't there for the first day because he was at his daughter's birthday party, wasn't it? Yeah, now he'd missed his son's birthday though for the coronation. So I suppose he probably felt he didn't want to, you know. I was listening to to news agents and um, the Guardian's media editor was on basically making the point that two-year-olds don't know what day of the, the week it is. So like he could have just gone along done the ah, thing and said no I think now you've got to it's, be a little it's girls. your birthday tomorrow yeah. I would not try to pull the wall over Blonde's eyes but no, I would buy your two year old would absolutely know she'd be like you're <laughs> she's not great. even two to September but she'd, she'd know that she'd be yeah. like it's going up now it's my birthday so what, what's, what's the rub of this whole case what's the purpose of it Look, I suppose Harry is trying to, and it, and actually, I would say the burden of proof does rest on his shoulders to prove whether or not that phone hacking took place in the course of uh, multiple stories that uh, were published about his life. So, just as we came to air here today, what happened earlier this morning, um, a lot of discussion around his relationship with Chelsea Davy. So, Harry has kind of been very open and saying that he feels like his relationship with Chelsea Davy was definitely impacted by some of the media coverage around that relationship. Uh, one particular story from 2006 alleging that he had visited a sleazy strip joint um, alleged that Chelsea Davy went berserk when she found out and slammed the phone down. Now, Harry said that he never discussed that with anybody in the palace, that, you know, despite the fact that palace sources were quoted in this piece, he'd never discussed it with palace sources or with anyone in the palace. And he also said that the details in terms of, you know, the duration of the phone call, uh, the timing of it, it was all so specific that it's his assertion that the only way the person who printed that story could have known that is if the phone had been hacked. So the whole point of this is he's trying to prove that the Daily Mirror yeah, effectively got all these stories, all these countless stories over the years about him through illegal phone hacking. Yeah, illegal. That's going to be difficult to prove. Yes, mm. but is there something to be said that there is another purpose to this that it doesn't like his legal team will know that's a very difficult thing to actually prove mm. that these stories were taken yeah. from this. Is yeah. there a? It doesn't matter if I lose doing this high profile thing, which the world's cameras are on, will highlight grubby press practices anyway and the level of intrusion that. Yeah. 
I suppose yeah. himself and his family have had to that, go through for many many years that it's part of a broader crusade because mm-hmm. yeah. it even seems like some of the arguments that are being made in his behalf in court don't quite tally with what he had been saying in the Netflix series or mm-hmm. in his book that you know he was previously saying like the whole thrust of the Netflix series was that oh palace sources are stitching me up that the institution the firm closed yeah. ranks around my father and my brother and threw me out to dry yeah. so that he was basically implying that all these palace sources questions they, they all actually came from actual palace sources mm. and now he's saying in court that all palace sources stories were actually obtained through illegal means because they were like tapping his phone yeah. Well, well, which is it? And if you can't provide any evidence, I think to say in that fairness it was, to him, I think it might have been different for every story. I don't think it's a it's a one size fits all thing. I think for some stories, he hmm. very openly said in Spare and in the documentary series that he felt that um, he was used to um, trade off stories to have advantageous coverage for Camilla, for example, hmm. when she was being welcomed into the fold. That they were sort of they were trading in in stories about Harry, and like he was like pretty he didn't hold back really did he I yeah. mean, it seems like his but, relationship with her is not good but I do feel like there's an inconsistency though between what he said um, previously and what he's saying now yeah no I like I would say that the phone hacking allegation didn't feature that much in the book or in the Netflix documentary did you, you didn't watch them did you no you well maybe you're still subdued to say he's so like I wouldn't lose that time kind of, out of my life <laughs> well because it, it was still pending litigation so he probably couldn't say it probably out there couldn't anymore, say it at yeah. the time but he definitely is adamant in the course of the evidence he's given over the last two days in the High Court in London that um, phone hacking took place and that it was um, news gathering yeah. I suppose you want for for a better term uh, through illegal means I, I think even if he wins he loses because if he loses he loses and then they double down and then they, he gets even more spiteful coverage and if mm. he wins they'll double down and give him more spiteful coverage the, I don't, I don't le- see what merit comes of this The level of coverage so far and the, the sort of the teener of the coverage has been fairly spiky towards I know it has and like it's, it's relentlessly but I, like, I, I, don't, I don't want to see Prince Harry ever again in any sort of sense I don't want to read any more Harry coverage it's disgusting stuff to be honest for the most part uh, it's pure bile and vitriol yeah. and uh, I'm just tired in the extreme about the extreme. of seeing him hearing mad things that he says uh, and seeing mad stuff that is written about him I, do you know what I would agree with you on? I have to say, and we said this in the newsroom this morning, like I think poor Harry actually is a very traumatised individual. I think he's actually suffered a lot of, you know, uh, PTSD or whatever. Or, you know, I think that not PTSD, but I think he's suffered obviously at the hands of a lot of the pressure that he's been under because of the life he was born into. And I can understand the need to sort of feel like you have to fight back. And I think for his mother's like legacy, I think he wants to do this. And he can understand his reasons for doing it. But also you have to be honest and say that for example, the last few days have just filled the, the column inches and filled pages that that he's sort of fighting against. You know, yeah. I think that almost sort of him taking the stand has, the has fed the beast, actually. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to look at it. Um, and actually, you know, as much as, I, as you say, he's trying his best to fight, it's very difficult to prove what he's trying to prove. And in the meantime, he's just sort of filling the newspapers a little bit, which I think is probably... Uh, not really how he saw it no. playing out. Ironically, the least anyway. Yeah. Richard, what's happening with Live Golf? I feel like I'm totally not across this Live Golf yeah. situation. Yeah, so people might be aware what happened last year was the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, which basically is run by Saudi Arabia, which is a very controversial government due to their track record on women's rights, mm-hmm. uh, LGBT rights, the uh, destructive bombing campaign in Yemen, uh, and the uh, effective dismemberment of people who would criticise the regime like Jamal Khashoggi, that journalist uh, who was hacked to bits uh, by Bonesaw uh, in a Saudi consulate in uh, the country of Turkey. So basically what Saudi Arabia has been doing for a long time now is try and glamorise their image and make themselves look like a cool, great place to do business, sort of, you know, make themselves a little bit distract, distract people from the human rights record and all the mm-hmm. bad things that they're doing by buying up you know, the greatest show on earth, which is professional sports. So effectively, they set up their own golf league last year. They paid 
shed loads of money to a load of big, big golfers to come play for their league and leave the current league, which is effectively the PGA Tour. So people like Phil Mickelson went over, took hundreds of millions of dollars to do this. But a lot of people were like, hey, a minute, I want to stay with the PGA Tour. Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods, chief amongst them, even though they were offered nine figures each to go and do it. Literally hundreds of millions of dollars to do wow. it. Like, for example, Phil Mickelson was offered $200 million to make the jump to live wow. golf. Yeah. Which is an enormous amount of money simply just to change your employer. And would Phil Mickelson, Mickelson not have made that money with the current no, employer? No, so no. there was a kind of a... It's probably, it's probably more than his career earnings. Phil Mickelson's uh, yeah. won a few majors. Like, he, he's not a poor man, but that's still more than his career earnings. So, okay. effectively, what's happened now is that um, a lot of those players who stuck with the PGA Tour did not sell out, but the PGA Tour sold out for them. Mm. They have effectively give, thrown up the white flag. They have signed a very lucrative merger with Live Golf. So Saudi Arabia effectively now owns the sport, the professional sport of men's golf. Uh, so they will have, um, they are sort of running the commercial interest of the, the now combined PGA Tour, DP Tour, which is the old European Tour, and Live Golf. So effectively what we've seen in many years, people might have seen, you know, Saudi Arabia trying to host more sporting events. They're trying to host the World Cup. They bought Newcastle United Football Club. Mm-hmm. Now they're progressing from let's host a tournament, let's buy a club, to let's buy the sport or the league. And Which that is, is it as simple as that thing. they own the sport. Yeah, thing. and that's as simple yeah. as that. And if you think about just the playbook, it's it's difficult not to think how they would do it for any other sport. So what they did in golf was there were two existing tours that existed in this kind of nice symbiosis, this lovely harmony, the US tour and the European tour, and they got along fine. The Saudis came along with their money, set up a new tour and created such a, a split, a schism in the sport that the only way to heal it was basically for the Saudis to take over the entire sport. So why wouldn't you do that again with any other sport? If you like the idea of tennis, for example. Tennis mm. is basically a singular world tour, the ATP tour. Um, there would be nothing to stop in principle a, a Saudi breakaway tour getting set up, which would cause such harm to the game that the only way to repair it would be to merge the tours, possibly under Saudi ownership, and then extend it to anything else. Like the Saudi investment fund is now buying up loads of teams in that league. Why wouldn't they eventually just buy up the entire league? Why wouldn't they buy entire competitions like it's it's possible and like, it seems, no reason why you wouldn't that seems like to be the path that they're on now people will have seen you know Cristiano Ronaldo mm-hmm. one of the biggest soccer stars of all time plays in the Saudi league which is embarrassing to be honest and uh, now they've bought Karim Benzema another one of the game's big stars Lionel Messi perhaps one of the most recognisable sports athletes of all time mm-hmm. is also being targeted for that league there is a, a train of thought that they might try and get these four teams which are now owned by the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia into the UEFA Champions League, which is, of course, the premier sports competition in football. They want to play in the European, Cup. They want to play in the European Cup, even though they're not in Europe. Um, but the thing about it is the PGA Tour um, has showed its arse effectively mm. uh, in that last year they came out and they were like, this is sports washing. They're trying to you know distract from their human rights record. Uh also gleefully, I would say, linking Saudi Arabia to the 9-11 attacks. Of course, a number of the Saudi Arabian uh, nationals were involved in the, in the attacks. But now for the same person, Jay Monaghan, who was the CEO of the PGA Tour, to now come out and basically say, oh, the facts changed. This is now in the best interests of golf, is a very craven U-turn. The they didn't change. His bank balance changed. Money talked. Money talked. And that's what happened. So this is something to watch. This is what we're going to see more of. Qatar, uh, another Gulf state with a dodgy human rights record, is trying to buy Manchester United. What's happening here is big, big stuff on the global political stage. It's not just about sport. It's obviously very sad for people like Roy McIlroy and we're probably going to hear from him later today. But I think what has been the reaction or have you seen much reaction from just like 
people who are fans of golf, people who play golf themselves in their local club, you know, what does it mean for individuals that support so, golf? So for, Is it for hard them, for them to like as get on board with this? Will, as will people boycott golf now? Well, or? This thing, because there's nowhere to boycott, there's nowhere so. else to go. You basically ignore the professional sport if that's how you feel. Right. Now, and because so then that becomes the end of the sport you love. So you're not effectively, that. so that you basically, this is the only way you can watch the sport now is if you're watching something which is basically a product of the Saudi Arabian So you're left government. with no choice now. You have you got to get on board. A corner. You which is get the whole, on board or you, or you give up on a sport that you've loved for your entire life. Which is the point of sports washing. You know, if we get to a point in a couple of weeks time if we're talking about Qatar buying Manchester United, people like me then have a bit of a reckoning of, well, how much do you want to get on board with this knowing that your club is being used to launder the reputation of governments with a lot to cover up. Like and it's a very uneasy thing, but that's where we are now. You know, The thing is it works. That is the biggest thing to say about sports wa- sports washing is that it works. You will have seen when Newcastle United were taken over, people wearing, you know, or flying Saudi flags. You'll have seen over the last while, Manchester United fans begging, begging online for Qatar to buy them out because they want the money to compete with Manchester City. Mm. And they will be like welcoming Qatar with open arms. This always works and it's why they do it. And it's why they will continue to do it, probably to the detriment of professional sport. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're very welcome back to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. Uh, Gav, back to some politics. What's happening with the Green Party? Are they screwed in some way, shape, or form? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Next question. Okay. Uh, yeah, and a rough, rough couple of weeks on on multiple fronts for the Green Party. Uh, firstly, because let's not put too much stock into any single individual poll, uh, political opinion poll. But there was an interesting one in last week's Sunday Independent, where not alone did they ask people what party would you vote for if there was an election tomorrow, but they also asked people what party would you not give a preference to. So when you're filling down the ballot paper and you go mm. one, two, three, four, however far you might go, uh, would is there any party that you wouldn't consider giving a preference to? And traditionally. Sinn Féin are always seen as the most transfer toxic party but they've been overtaken by the Greens as the party that the most people would rule out giving, giving a preference to. Basically half of all voters say mm. I would not give a Green candidate a preference under any circumstances. Extraordinary Which, achievement for Eamon Ryan. Um, well not only yeah. that but when the poll also said that they were at 3% of first preference votes if you're only getting 3% of all the first preferences and half of voters say they won't give you anything at all then basically it's hard to see how you'd really retain any seats at all. Like there's always local fluctuations, but it's very hard to imagine how many Green TDs, if any, would be able to keep their seats if that's how unpopular in relative terms they are. And what's your read of the motivation for that response, Richard? Is it because, for example, the Greens potentially aren't green enough for the people who would have voted for them before? Is it that, um, you know, they're not perceived as a strong enough partner within the coalition? What do you think the motivation for that, that vote is? The biggest thing is that they are... The simplest scapegoat for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil TDs, rurally speaking, they can be like, if you're not happy with how the coalition is doing, 
blame the Greens. They have too much influence. Eamon Ryan is pulling all the strings there. All this mad climate stuff, which is ruining rural Ireland, like, you know, carbon taxes and, um, you know, cutting down on emissions from agriculture. That's all down to Eamon Ryan and those guys. So they never vote for them again or never consider voting for them again. So that has a huge sway. So there's a big push against that. And you'll see that online as well. There's a lot of in- misinformation which is going on about plans around uh, how to cut down on agricultural emissions. Mm. And the Greens are always going to be flagged for that. They're always going to be flagged for that. They're always going to want give you one to take the kicking on it. Obviously, there's always the being the smallest partner partner in a coalition as well. You're always going to be the one to take the shoe. Look in. at the Labour Party. I mean, the Labour Party is like really sort yeah, of completely the PD. Like it's tale as old as time that the junior partner always gets a bit of a kick. Yeah, and then also would it be a real warning shot to people who consider going into a coalition in a small party now. Say if you look at the Sock Dems, for example, but like if they were asked to back up or prop up a government, if you were Holly Kearns, you'd be wondering, would you bother? Sock Dems, who got six percent in the same poll and were also the most transfer. Uh, attractive party only 18% of people said they wouldn't vote for a sock dem somewhere along the ballot papers that would then put them in line to win a lot more seats which, which allows us to make another Zara Kingmaker joke for the very oh, least yeah. of nothing else um, <laughs> but then it, it does beg the question as to well then what do you do in government in the meantime yeah. and that's where the last fortnight got very tricky for the Greens because there was a report from the Environmental Protection Agency that said that even if we implement everything that we've got planned up till 2030, everything that we can quantify, there are some things yet that they haven't done the sums for, but all of the climate um, measures effectively that we were going to do between now and 2030, if they were all done, would reduce our emissions by 29% versus the 2018 levels. Mm. Our legally binding target is 51%. So even if we do everything that's mapped out, we're still only about halfway towards achieving our goals for seven years' time, let alone for whatever time in the future. Which is not great, especially when you have a Green Party minister responsible for environmental issues and transport and apparently steering the government agenda. To not be able to achieve your goals, even in the intermediate, is really not good. No, and I mean, the thing about it as well is people who are members of the Green Party, when they saw that this coalition was being formed in the first place, they were like, hell no, we didn't want this. Mm. We didn't want this. He said this would all be okay, but we didn't want this. Mm. Uh, And when you see the track record in housing, a lot of people who would have voted for the Greens, no matter where they are in the country, would have wanted to see action on housing. And it just has not happened. Just has not happened. Uh, So there would be a feeling of betrayal. We've seen so many... Green TDs who are still within the party fold even coming out and sort of saying I'm not happy with this or I'm not happy with that. It's just been a disastrous run for them in government. I know that they will put their hands up and ministers of their party will say well we were dealt a difficult hand people appointed you know the difficult the, the multitude of different things which we dropped on Roderick mm-hmm. O'Gorman's desk for example as well. But it has not been a pleasant run for them in government and now they're effectively being, effectively being knifed by Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil as well. Like the question is though, when we talk about, you know, Ireland's climate targets, do we not need to have a green TD, a green minister at the cabinet table to really achieve those? Because if you're talking about the sort of like missing the mark while someone is at the table, how bad would it be if they weren't there? Is that a, that's a serious well, question. I've yeah. that point to Eamon Ryan before and I said, well, you know, at this point, have they not all like stolen your clothes? Because every party, although they've got disagreements about how you get there, every party, at least on the face of it, talks up the need to achieve our climate targets and how not least the economic future of the country, but also literally the livability of the country and the planet Mm. is sort of up in the air. And I put that to Eamon Ryan and he said, oh, I only wish that were the case. That basically he thinks that, to to coin a phrase, he thinks that the the rest of them are all fur coat and no knickers. That they're all making all these promises, but when it comes to actually delivering these stuff, he doesn't believe that their heart is actually Mm. in it. Which is a reasonable case to make on one hand, but a harder case to make when you yourself have your hands on the steering wheel and the stuff isn't being done in the meantime, that if you believe you're the only party that actually really cares about implementing this stuff 
and you're still falling so short. Like, it's not great. Eamon Ryan did say last week after that report came out that he did see some positives in it because if you think of the country as being like a, an enormous tanker, you can't just turn it around straight away. It's mm-hmm. going to need time to get in the right direction. Then he said, well, at least this is evidence of us moving towards the right direction. Right. But it's a pretty slow move. Uh, do you know anybody who's voted for the Greens currently, Gazara? Um, Silence speaks volumes really, isn't it? You know what I mean? Just trying to think, I'm just trying to think. I know people who have voted for the Greens. Yeah, but this is the thing. There yeah. was that whole movement. Do you remember know, around like it's, it was those huge. open Euros? Yeah, yeah, no, it was. I'm just trying to think of those people that I know, though, and conversations I've had with them in recent times. And I'm not convinced they probably would actually know yeah. that you say that. Yeah. It just feels like for the environmental movement and people who felt that there was a great push there for a bright new future in Irish politics where the Greens would, you know, because obviously they got all these new TDs in after, you know, great local Euros beforehand. It feels that just, it's just evaporated. That is just poof, it's Can I ask gone. you a question straight out? Would a change of leadership at the top no, it wouldn't. do anything for them? Well, because, well, because clearly the Sock Dems have benefited from a change of leadership. Well, that remains to be seen though. Well, I mean, did the poll results well, not suggest? But it's, it's all hypothetical. They haven't well, I know, I know. And, again, and also, if you ask any politician or any party, they'll say a poll is a poll and yeah. they'll well, never like, comment on it. Four to six percent on the Social Democrats isn't exactly... That's what if you put Roger Gorman in at the top of the Greens? Just as a fair argument. Like, <laughs> we already have time. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> with, with, but, with disability, but, equality, exactly. integration, children but and But I'm youth just saying, do you running. think because of Roger Gorman's work in so many different fields no. and different areas that he would be perhaps more high-profile high leader at this point? One or, thing, I, you know? I don't, think the, I don't think the answer is yes to that, but I, I do think that one issue that the Greens have had is that when you've only got three ministers at cabinet level and Catherine Martin has by and large taken a fairly low profile and Roger Gorman has been too busy just doing the myriad of stuff that's on his desk, mm-hmm. that Eamon Ryan ends up being the only spokesperson. So then it nearly becomes a personal referendum on whether you like him. And now, for better or worse, or whether it's justified or not, he has this reputation of being this kind of like over-idealistic thinker who's willing to propose loads of new taxes to fund loads of new measures, which a lot of people are just like, well, no, I don't kind of see that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And there's so many other crises that seem more immediate, like not being able to get a hospital appointment or not being able to find a home. Yeah. That, like it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People will always relegate lofty green stuff about being able to live somewhere until you actually get a, get a house. And only when it comes to the point where suddenly the world is becoming uninhabitable that the idea of, oh, well, actually, no, maybe somewhere to live in a very literal can't live on this planet sense, only then will it actually overtake a housing shortage. So for as long as there's more immediate crises, the Greens are always going to be in trouble. Mm. Richard, why is WhatsApp becoming bad for our health? I saw this article, I put it into the to the group. Effectively, it's, it, it just boils down to WhatsApp anxiety. You know, the pinging of unread messages <laughs> is something which will definitely have gotten on anybody's nerves at any given time. I know it certainly has for you, I'd say, in particular. I just, the like, great, we're the great have... unresponder of messages. <laughs> uh, Two blue ticks. I'm like the most, no, I don't know. I would never leave you unread. I just wouldn't open your message. Like, that's the terrible part about me. Is that, that, that is it, yeah. I, Can you show yeah. us how many unread conversations you have right now, actually? Oh, God, why do we always? Well, we do because. I never come off you're... well out of these conversations, well, but, ever. Well, we, we do because 329 I. 329 unread conversations. 329? I just can't like so I don't know I, I feel none. they're all red yeah but we know this about you like you open all your emails and I mean I just can't be opening all of my uh, <laughs> Rory our producers just text me to see if I'll open his message <laughs> she did I've given you an open Spoiler there Rory but I'm texting back um, do you know what I just sometimes I see so like do you not just feel kind of overwhelmed by groups and so many messages coming in and it's just sometimes I actually think for my own sort of like peace of mind I cannot deal with opening those messages mm. and getting back straight away throughout the day and I know that's terrible and I know that it's not the best way to handle things but 
it's just it is relentless though isn't it like your phone is constantly buzzing at you there's always someone looking for you for something and then I will often ring people back I am a phone call person I'll often ring people back like two weeks after they text me and be like I just opened your message now how are you and like phone them for a chat and I know that that's terrible but that's that's how I deal with I suppose how busy it's, it's, it which do you think is, would give you more anxiety the idea of leaving somebody with two blue ticks yeah I feel really bad about that yeah I feel or, really bad about or that or allowing your own unread messages to pile up and I would feel I would feel worse about reading somebody's message and then just not replying to them because I think that that's kind of like oh I read it and I didn't bother getting back to you whereas so if you just consciously ignore no it's not that but like I mean if you don't read it you, you get to it when you have time to get to it and then you get back to that person promptly after yeah. that do you know what I mean whereas I don't I think it's the reading it and then like sort of not getting back to them is a little bit like worse probably I don't know yeah it's it's the overarching it's the fact that it is now effectively the place where all communication on mobile is done mm. uh, it has become so instrumental to everyone's lives whether that be work and social that uh, it is almost impossible to think of life and doing even our job or organising your social calendar without it. Gave the, the name of the podcast. The name of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. That's Here exactly why it is there. Yeah. And there are too many group chats of different varieties for even the most spurious of reasons. That's part of what this the, the research has shown mm. is that that ends its, it lends itself to anxiety as well. What I've started to do, I've turned off the whole anything where you can see when someone's online and oh, anything where the um, mm. thing. yeah and I, I, I yeah I don't have blue ticks anymore I'm just like that's that's utterly pointless maybe I should get rid of the yeah. blue ticks but that is a two way thing though isn't it that if you turn off blue ticks then you don't get them either so you exactly, don't know yeah. whether your message has been read I don't need to know if it's been read I'm fine with that yeah, like just, so the thing about it is like I don't like I'm fine with that I, I you have to be fine with that if you're going to be the kind of person who's not going to open it, you have to be fine with someone else not opening your message you have to it's a two way street it's just it is a but it is a it is there are definite downsides to it it is such a handy app and it's such a handy way of communicating mm. but I mean we've seen what happens happens in various parts of the world when WhatsApp is down and it becomes this clunky mess to try and, you know, string together normal SMS texts or, you know, hitting up people on, you know, Instagram or Facebook Messenger or God mm. forbid, uh, any other way of trying to get in touch with them. Do you remember during but, one of the Boris Johnson or Liz Truss uh, power yeah, vacuums that exactly WhatsApp went down about. and like Westminster basically didn't function for six hours? Yeah. But like nobody like, knew how to plot anymore. The newsroom has a WhatsApp group, let's be honest. <laughs> the newsroom, like if the, if WhatsApp went down at like quarter past five, like it would be a little bit chaotic for the newsroom. Be trouble you know what I mean? Because there, yeah. like we, uh, like to like oh, break the fourth wall, you know, there's often a text from producer Brian at like 20 past five, bullet in his full tight lives, please. You know, mm. so sort of like don't go over your allotted time or you'll be in trouble and that comes via WhatsApp every day so you know we all sort of rely on it um, but yeah I mean like I think it's it's we are all so um, contactable all the time now aren't we it's that kind of ability to switch off is sort of it's gone really yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and as you know the fact that we're talking about it, it is so important from a social as well as a working perspective you have no escape from it as well yeah. effectively which just adds to the, I suppose the potential for anxiety and for just it just allowing itself into this always on existence where you feel because you're always going to be on WhatsApp whether it is for social or for work mm-hmm. that if you got work texts late on into the evening that's fine because that's you were on WhatsApp anyway like there's no excuse for not reading it it's different if it's an email you might mm-hmm. not be logging onto your emails but you can't be sitting there online when Editor Joe was sending you a text about work tomorrow and yeah. you can see you're online and you're not opening it. So yeah, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it's something worth examining. I can definitely see why there is such a sort of a feeling of anxiety around it. So as we're recording, we just had a statement from Rory McIlroy. Gav, do you want to take us through? Yeah, he's been giving a press conference uh, on the fringes of a an event in Canada that he's golfing at this weekend. And of course, he's been asked about, in his pre-tournament press conference, about the PGA Live Golf merger. And he says uh, at his press conference, uh, it's hard for me to not sit up here and feel somewhat like a sacrificial lamb. 
and feeling like I put myself out there and this is what happens. Uh, removing myself from the situation, I see how this is better for the game of golf. There's no denying it. For me as an individual, there's just going to have to be conversations that are had. Now, he says he doesn't understand a lot of the intricacies of what's going on, a lot of ambiguities. Still has confidence in Jay Monaghan, who's now going to be the chief executive of this uh, joint operation. Now, he says he's dealt with him very closely and where we were a couple of weeks ago, he thinks the future of the PGA Tour looks brighter as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and hot take it's very difficult to sound magnanimous or to sound like you want to move on without sounding like you're selling out which I suppose is as Richard was pointing out the ultimate point of sports well, washing that or he just quits, makes you do it or he quits his job yeah. Richard um, we did have a good success story in the Irish ecosystem though this week and I have to say your excitement about it was very endearing I just like nice things happening it was lovely it and was lovely. Uh, the reintroduction of white-tailed uh, sea eagles uh, has been a great success story. And funny enough, it is actually under the remit, effectively, of the Department of Housing, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it's it... heritage for yeah. yeah. So well done. success for the Department of Housing. So basically what's happened over the last number of years, since about 2008, I think it is, 2007, 2008, we have tried to reintroduce the white-tailed eagle to Ireland. It had become extinct because humans kept on shooting them and poisoning them and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but we started a programme with Norway to reintroduce them. Now we have, I think, about 12 breeding pairs. Most of them are based around Kerry, uh, Connemara and uh, in East Clare and it is in East Clare that I take you for this story (laughs) where miners of the hurling variety and the fledgling (laughs) variety had a good weekend because uh, two new uh, chicks were born there uh, to a male eagle uh, who was one of the earliest introductions introduced eagles into Ireland but he had an earlier partner who died of the avian flu which is also a big problem for eagles Uh, and also one of his earlier offspring also gave birth to three other eaglets, Aww. if you want to call that, all born in East Coast. So that's five new eagles on the march there. It has been a great success story because uh, this is just something that is working really well. There's a lot of input from like local agriculture and local farmers to make sure that it goes off without, like some eagles have died. 2020 to 2021 was really bad because there was a lot of unsettled weather. Uh, so basically nests were ripped us under because of all the storms that were on there. There has been some like problems where some eagles have died because they've eaten uh, foxes which have been shot with shotgun and getting lead poisoning from there. So this is something which seems to be going from strength to strength. It's probably going to be a model for other species being introduced like the osprey is another Mm. eagle or eagle-like creature which they've tried to reintroduce. But it's probably something which other countries are going to try and replicate as well. Two new generations, two new families of eaglets, one of whom was the nephew or niece of the other. Does that not just sound like a soap opera plotline waiting to happen? Yeah. Like you introduced two, ah, two new generations of, of, you know, we don't, of we batters bees or here. slaters or whatever. But they are incredible because the, the level of breeding which is now happening is uh, probably beyond what they would have expected. And it was a very slow start. So from 2007, it took didn't look like this was going to work at all. Right. Uh, didn't look like this was going to work. And now it seems to be absolutely going full guns blazing. These these eagles are at it left, right and centre oh, uh, up and down right. the West Coast. Some of them actually have flown away to Scotland for a time and then come back. For a romantic breakaway. Just getting, getting out there. They're like, do you know what? What's over here? And then they're like, do you know what? They're heard about you basically advertising good. the Isle of Sky. And yeah. like, that sounds great. And then they're like, <laughs> you know what? I'll come back after a while. So good on the eagles. We'll keep an eye on them. Oh, like I'm excited. Eagle I think that's, that is lovely. That is lovely. That's I a, mean, nice, it was, a nice note to finish it on. It was a nice note to finish on. Um, we did mention at the start of the programme best of luck to those doing the Leaving Cert. I do love the annual joke about best of luck to the politicians who are wishing best of luck to the students that are sitting in the Leaving Cert. Such an annual joke, Richard's actually stopped doing you it. You stopped making that joke. Yeah, stop making that joke. I almost te- I teased doing it earlier, but uh, I didn't, do it. didn't yeah. actually get there. Because it's terrible and uh, people will just take it to the next level. Okay, okay, okay. It's an overworked online joke. If you are listening or watching this podcast uh, while. Taking your leaving cert exams. Don't. Um, 
Totally waste your time with us. Yeah, Don't if you're leaving search. We'll still, we'll still be here in a couple of Enjoy your rest time. Don't worry about the news if you're doing leaving search. Totally. Sorry. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're watching us, it means you are already on Virgin Media One and you've tuned in at 11 o'clock. But just to remind you that we're going to be here again next week. So we're on one for the month of June, I think, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. Full month of June. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Great week. Enjoy the chats. Yeah. yeah great Any show. other business, folks, before we wrap up? Um, if you are still doing the leaving search, make sure you use top up on antihistamines. Don't be like this mug <laughs> in 2004. Okay. I speak from experience. <laughs> That's time, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the group chat. Uh, news correspondent Richard Chambers. Thanks, Zara. Thank you very much. Special correspondent Gavin Riley. Thank you, Zara. I've been Zara King, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.